Welcome to Citizen Detective with me, Paul Detman. Don't forget you can get your free guide at www.citizendetective.uk. This week's episode is about the missing person case of Claudia Lawrence. Claudia Lawrence is a missing person who lived near York until 2009. She disappeared either on the night of March the 18th or early the following morning. I've seen accounts that she sent her final text message around 8.30pm on the 18th of March, and other accounts strongly suggest that she left for work as normal the following morning on foot. She did not arrive at work, that's a fact, and the police were called the following day on the 20th after Claudia missed an appointment to meet a friend. Claudia's never been found, despite a crime watch campaign, constant campaigning by her family, and reinvestigations by the police. Interestingly, her phone was deliberately switched off at 10 minutes past 12pm lunchtime on the 19th of March. Somehow the police managed to determine that this was not the result of the battery dying. It was actively turned off by a human. Her chef's whites, phone and rucksack were not at her house and have never been found. This is why the police think she left for work as normal very early before dawn on the morning of the 19th. This case caught my attention straight away because Claudia was my age when she disappeared and would still be today. And she's from Yorkshire. So immediately my mind went back to Christopher Laverack and all the other local cases that I remember from my childhood. But I just felt straight away that this was a disturbing case. I think a missing person is always more difficult, more challenging than a clear murder. Although the police very quickly said that they do believe Claudia was murdered. The lack of a body means there's no or little to no evidence. The only evidence they have is from the house and car and any possessions that Claudia might have had. And it means it's very much harder to concretely proceed as if it was a murder investigation because you've got to keep open the possibility that she absconded and doesn't want to be found. I find that impossible to believe. So the police went on the assumption, um, well, it's more than an assumption, it's a, it's a well-established pattern that Claudia would have been abducted if she was abducted by somebody she knew, a family member or a friend or an acquaintance of some kind that she had previously met and therefore knew a little bit about her, maybe a lot about her. However, there is another possibility, and I think the only other possibility really is that she was taken by random chance. Chris Clark and the North Yorkshire Enquirer believe that serial killer Christopher Halliwell abducted and murdered Claudia Lawrence. You might remember that not naming suspects is a golden rule of Citizen Detective and it's shared with the murder squad as well, which I like and admire. But this is an exception. If the suspect is already a convicted criminal, especially if they're convicted of murdering women, then naming them is perfectly fair. The police will already track those angles down if they suspect a link between a particular murder or missing person and a convicted serial killer, or indeed any convicted offender from the area or from somebody with links to the area. And Halliwell apparently does have family in the area around Yorkshire and could have been there in March 2009, but I'm just naturally sceptical of these claims until I've had chance to check the evidence for myself. Now, I do have huge respect for Chris Clark. He wrote the book about the Yorkshire Ripper that I enjoyed reviewing earlier this series, and I uh, understand he's a former policeman with decades of experience. But nevertheless, no matter how good the source, a true citizen detective needs to 
see things for themselves and to think for themselves. And this brings me back to John Douglas of Mindhunter fame last week's special episode. You should question everything and put yourself in the mindset using raw information, not secondhand stuff or other people's theories. Get your hands on witness statements if they're available, and they can be available in various archives, although not in a case like this where it's comparatively recent. You can read the newspapers so you can see how the story unfolded in real time, which is very important, and watch the local TV news from the day after the uh, missing person as well. But you shouldn't just nod at someone else's theory. Quite a lot has been made of the final text message that was received on Claudia's phone, not sent, but received around 9pm on the night before she disappeared. The message came from Cyprus. This was in the days before WhatsApp was so popular. So SMS messages were much easier to track than WhatsApp or any kind of encrypted messenger would be today. But it's fairly obvious that a man sending a text message from Cyprus couldn't have abducted a woman in York. And of course, what we don't know, hopefully the police do, is whether this Cyprus registered mobile was in fact in Cyprus on the day in question. Of course, he could have taken his phone on holiday to York. He could have been hounding Claudia and he could have abducted and killed her. But that should be easy to find out from cell phone masts. And they have done all of this analysis. That's how they know that Claudia's phone was switched off deliberately, either by her or by her killer. So if it really was sent from York, that will show up in a UK mobile network in their logs and audits of all of the comings and goings on their network, and it won't be on the Cyprus masts. So that's very easy to track. And I think we can rule that right out. I think if that was the case, he would have been found pretty quickly. It's frustrating to me, but I, I would say this, that British police are quite so secretive about evidence on cold cases. This is for obvious reasons. They don't want amateurs jeopardising a conviction. But after 10 years, they are nowhere. They have no body and they have no significant evidence other than some hearsay and DNA of people who might just be Claudia's friends. So why not let well-meaning strangers help as they do in the US. Many American, some high-profile cases like the Golden State Killer have been found by crowdsourcing and by members of the public. And it's very interesting to me that although you have Twitter and Crime Watch, or Crime Watch is finished now, but you have those kind of shows, you have those ma mainstream media channels to appeal to the public, many, many members of the public don't even watch these programmes. They are watching EastEnders. Whereas if you can reach them informally through podcasts, through blogs, a little bit like Lolly's True Crime, you can reach different people and, and you might reach a friend of a person who saw something or mentioned something one time and that can be followed up. Generally speaking, members of the public do not spend their time thinking and looking for serial killers. So I'll just put my soapbox away. I made a rule at the beginning of this project that I would only actively investigate stone cold cases. So I'm talking about the 1960s and 1970s. I don't want to talk to relatives. I need to remain detached. I don't want to make the killer angry in case he comes for me. So I'm just a coward, basically. I don't want to jeopardise a trial, most importantly. None of that is a possibility for a murder that perhaps happened in 1966 or 1971. Very often the suspects are all dead. Very often the immediate family have died too. But I am happy to cast light onto these cases, like Claudia, who live just a few miles from where I grew up. I'm perfectly happy to cover them on the podcast. I'm just not actively investigating this case. However, based on everything I've read, I'm certain that Claudia Lawrence is dead. And I think there are possibly three options. She accepted a lift off a known friend, colleague, and something went wrong after that. Or she got out of that car and then something happened to her along those lines. Or she accepted a lift from a stranger 
because he was going in the right direction and she was trusting and she didn't perceive there to be a threat. And obviously she was murdered then. Or she was abducted forcibly somehow. And I, I don't have a feeling yet for which of those is most likely. But what is clear is that she left personal items at home that she would not have needed at work. Therefore, I think the presumption that she did in fact set off for work is true. Therefore, the killer either knew her routine or it was a completely chance attack, which is very possible. And that's how the Chris Halliwell name came into the frame. And I think if Peter Sutcliffe had still been at large, he would have been interviewed too. In 2013, the case was reopened following the creation of a new major crimes unit. Amazingly, to me, they had access to techniques that they did not know about four years earlier. So this is how quickly DNA collection is going. And they found DNA on a cigarette end, which also shows the importance of retaining evidence long after a crime has occurred. There have been several arrests of men in their 50s, which explains some cryptic police comments about Claudia having a complicated private life involving more than one male. But these arrests have come to nothing, and the police have weakly blamed the witnesses for not cooperating properly, especially, it should be noted, the witnesses in Cyprus. Now, there are two things to mention here. It might be surprising to the British police that Mediterranean people do not like being asked questions by the British police. I think in this country, for various historical reasons, we tend to trust the police in a way that other countries do not. So I'm not at all surprised that Cypriot waiters and associated people are not happy cooperating with the British police or indeed the Cyprus police. And the other point I'd like to make is simply a question. Would you cooperate properly with the police if you had abducted and murdered a young woman? There is no doubt that the police treated this case seriously and have done everything that they can with limited resources. I've come to think that they need a body to proceed further with the case and only the killer knows where he left Claudia. Unlike the remains of Keith Bennett, which are known to be on wild moorland, bodies are usually found eventually. Their shallow graves or submerged riverbeds eventually give up their secrets. A body left in an urban area is usually found very quickly, unless it is buried in foundations. A builder would be able to hide a body in York. The likelihood is that Claudia was taken many miles away and left somewhere known only to her killer. And the Halliwell connection comes back in here as he actually lived in the south of England and his other two victims were found in the southwest, I think it was. If Claudia is the third victim, I am certain her remains will be near to where they were found. If she is not a Halliwell victim, she could literally be anywhere and she will only ever be found either by complete fluke or if the killer comes forward himself. I remain fascinated by this case, as I think you can tell, but there is one more word of caution. Another reason I don't like these recent cases is that the despair is still very fresh for the family, even 10 years later. In presenting a cold case, you have to remain detached, and in being detached, you can appear insensitive. I've gone back over this script and changed several mentions of the words body and remains into the name Claudia for this reason. On reflection, I felt that although I'm convinced she is dead, other people are not, and who am I to presume? Who am I to rake over this ground? These questions do not matter so much when the case is 50 years old or even older than that. And today, with advances in DNA collection and tracking, the police have all the forensic information they could ever need, except for a body in this case. If Claudia is found, I think this case will be solved. DNA was not collected in the 1980s because the first case to benefit from its use wasn't until 1986. So by picking cases older than that, you are no worse off than the police from a forensic point of view. Back then, it was just fingerprints and hearsay. Whose story do you believe? As an amateur, you have almost as much knowledge as the police did at the time.
I actually recorded this episode last week and it was all ready to go live. I'd got it scheduled, but I had a conversation with a few different people on social media and decided to revisit it before putting the episode live. Partly this was the result of further investigation, partly the result of seeing other people covering the case, just by coincidence actually, and I figured maybe with a few of us podcasting on the same thing and blogging on the same article at the same time, we were more likely to get noticed and get awareness and possibly even get some new leads. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Halliwell connection because after further research, I found that nobody is talking about Halliwell except for one or two people who can get a little bit blinkered in some of their investigations. And it is tempting to jump to conclusions. It is tempting to look for patterns and narratives that are neat. And this is what the police do when they arrive. Within seconds of arriving, sometimes there seem to be fitting clues into a matrix that fits other things they've seen. And that's good. That's experience talking. That's what people do naturally. But I think as a somebody trying to bring a legal mind or a open mind to a case, your presumption has to be that mistakes were made. If mistakes hadn't been made, the mystery would have been solved. So what is the point in accepting at face value facts and theories and facts and theories peddled as each other by other people? You have to start again. And I think this is why we get fascinated with true crime, is that every time you find a new case, you feel like you're the first person to see it and you get a new chance to look at the same facts and form a different opinion. We have the luxury of our opinions because we don't have to prosecute people. We don't have to put them in front of a judge and prove them innocent or guilty. We get to talk about things almost as entertainment and I'm very wary of that and very aware of that. I have pretty much dismissed the Halliwell idea completely now, but I have not dismissed the theory, which is not shared by the police or the family as far as I can tell, that Claudia might have come to harm on the night of the 18th of March instead of the morning of the 19th. And this may seem a small thing, but it's not because there are various possibilities around her going missing on the night of the 18th, which lead to other possibilities which change the narrative. A lot of the police have focused on CCTV from that evening, but also from the following morning. And a lot of the official timelines and evidence on the Yorkshire police site focus on the 19th. Arguments with cyclists, people shouting at each other from an open car door, people on a bridge, was at the right time of day between half five and six in the morning on the 19th, Were these the people? Were these somehow involved? A lot of Crime Watch and other energy has been expended on the 19th. We know that Claudia spoke to her mother around about 9pm on the 18th, the night before she failed to turn up for work. But I don't know whether that was on a landline or a mobile. She was pretty much addicted to a mobile. She used it a lot for texting and phone calls. That's pretty much all you could do on a mobile in 2009. So if she spoke to her mother on a mobile... She needn't have been at home. She could have been at somebody else's home. She could have been out in a pub or a restaurant or anywhere. The fact that she spoke to her mother on the night before is important, but it doesn't pin her to a location. So without further ado, I did some more research on this. I looked at the Yorkshire Police website and I put together two alternative narratives 
uh, the differ only at the end, which fit all of the public facts. This is to show how easy this is and also how likely it is that the police have some things, possibly significant things, wrong. And because if we focus more on the night of the 18th, it may lead to new leads that were not found because everybody else was focusing their attention on the morning of the 19th. So here we go. Morning of the 18th of March, 2009, Claudia Lawrence leaves home for work as normal. She grabs her caramel rucksack containing her chef whites, her hair straighteners and a Samsung D900 mobile phone. Does not take bank cards, but does have some cash in a pocket just in case she needs it at work. She takes a letter with her and arrives at work and carries out a normal shift. While at work, she borrows a stamp off a friend for the letter, intending to post it on the way home. She is walking because her own Vauxhall Corsa is in the garage and has been for a number of days. Claudia's shift starts at 6 o'clock each morning, so she has finished work in time for a late lunch. She leaves work at 2.30 and is spotted on CCTV as she posts a letter in a post box outside the post office. The time is 14.47, 2.47 and Claudia is almost halfway home. She walks past the Nags Head pub this time, not going inside, continues to her house and is not captured on CCTV ever again. Claudia texts and chats inside her house as she gets ready for a night on the town. Her house is not covered by CCTV directly, unfortunately, but there is a camera to the west left of the house, which she would have been captured on if she had ever walked past it. There is no footage of Claudia on this camera at any time. Probably around seven o'clock, Claudia leaves home. She is collected outside of her house by taxi or jumps on a bus or is picked up by a friend in a car. However, she gets there, Claudia is heading for Acom. She has been drinking there for a number of weeks, possibly for two reasons, perhaps because she fell out temporarily with the Nags head crowd, or more likely, she has a specific reason or specific person pulling her towards Acom. On the night of the 18th, Claudia is out drinking with her male friend in Acom. She texts sporadically throughout the evening and sends a final text at around 8.30. She talks to her mother around about 9 o'clock and puts the phone in her bag or pocket still switched on, focusing her attention on the evening ahead. A final text arrives from Cyprus at 21.12. Claudia never reads this and never replies. She never uses the phone again. She has all of her work clothes in the caramel rucksack in the man's car and fully intends to spend the night at his house. The plan is that he will drop her at work at 6 o'clock the following morning. The couple leave the pub together. And this is the sliding doors moment. Option one I have for you is the male friend is the killer. Something happens at the man's house. Perhaps it started as a disagreement in the car and escalated from there. Perhaps they've been arguing for a few days on the phone and text message. If that's the case, the police are likely to know about that. The male friend accidentally kills Claudia and finds somewhere in the local area to leave her. As this was not a planned action, he is panicking. He throws the bag and its contents, that's the rucksack, into the river with the D900 phone, which dies immediately at 10 past 12 on the 19th of March. There is nothing else to connect this man with Claudia and he has never been traced. Only he knows where she is. Option two is that the killer struck at the university. The evening proceeded as planned and Claudia had breakfast with her male friend around 5.30am on the 19th of March. It was too early for him to get ready for work, but he was very happy to give her a lift. He drops her off on the outskirts of the campus, leaving her to walk the short paths to the kitchen where she works. He drives away, thinking nothing out of the ordinary is going to happen. Claudia is intercepted on the campus by a man who is known to her and he turns off her 
phone at 12.10. The caramel bag is seen on the grass at the university around one o'clock that afternoon, but has never been seen again and never been traced by police. Claudia's killer wants to know where she was last night. They have an argument. He hits her, knocks her unconscious. None of this is captured on CCTV. And if it did happen, why didn't Claudia's innocent boyfriend from Acom ever come forwards? And how did this killer persuade or drag Claudia away from the university without being seen? I think this is the least likely of the two options. But the purpose anyway of this is to demonstrate that it's very easy to take the timeline that's been published, take the photographs and all of the information that's been put out there by the police and build a new narrative. Now you have to assume that they have already done this and that there is a very specific reason that they don't want to tell us that they are focusing their energies on the morning of the 19th. But nevertheless, this investigation was flawed originally, which is why it had to be reopened just four years after with new people and new evidence and new methods. And therefore you have to question everything. If we have a role to play here at all, it is to question everything, but not to fall for some of the outlandish theories which are circulating online. That is also a big mistake. There is a middle ground between questioning everything and believing everything or believing nothing, and you can thread your own way through that narrative and, and make your own conclusions. So that's my final contribution to the Claudia Lawrence disappearance. Hopefully all of these episodes from other people, from blogs uh, elsewhere in the UK this week leads to some more evidence, some new ideas. I don't ever have to say this on my podcast because I'm dealing with the distant past, but if you do know anything, if you know anybody, if you have any suspicions or doubts, please do call Crime Stop that's the right thing to do and hopefully this case will be solved. Thank you for listening.